You're listening to The Naked Pravda. This is a relatively new show from Medusa, our first English language podcast, so please don't be shy about recommending us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in. Welcome to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, the managing editor of Medusa's English Language Edition, and I'm a week late with today's show because I'm getting over the flu. If you can hear the lingering effects of the disease in my voice now, I apologize. My wife assures me, however, that This American Life's Ira Glass goes on the air when he's sick, so I'm here with the latest episode of The Naked Pravda. I'll make sure to edit out all my coughing, which is happening. They're out. On today's show, we're going to talk about Russia's push for internet sovereignty, or runet isolation, as some people call it. This is one of those amorphous topics that pops up constantly in different forms. The Agora Human Rights Group and digital activist at Raskomsvoboda only just released a new report on Russian internet freedom last year, where they argue that Russia's state authorities have settled on an internet policy vector focused on control, censorship, and isolation. Late last year, Medusa published a story about how a federal protective service veteran and the descendant of one of Russia's most celebrated families of missile engineers, that's a thing, a man named Sergei Khudortsev, has been appointed to serve as the director of a powerful new monitoring center inside Raskomnadzor, Russia's state censor, which is responsible for enforcing legislation that took effect in November 2019 that is ostensibly intended to ensure the integrity, continuity, stability, resilience, and security of the functioning of the Internet's Russian national segment. The law charges this new division of Raskomnadzor with ensuring the Runet's stable operation and defense from external threats. Telecom operators, enterprises that own their own networks, and the proprietors of internet traffic exchange points will have to provide the new monitoring center with all relevant information about their network infrastructure. For example, the locations of cross-border communications lines, traffic routing, IP address poles in use, and more. Additionally, all telecom operators and enterprises that own their own networks will be required to install special equipment, technical means against threats, they call it, probably deep packet inspection technology, but we'll get to that later, that will be provided at the state's expense. The new hardware will be capable of blocking banned internet content and rerouting network traffic. The law also provides for the creation of Russia's own national domain name system, which will make it possible to ensure the operability of Russian internet resources in the event that foreign DNS root servers become unavailable. In the event of a security threat to the Runet's functioning, the center will assume control of all the communication networks in the country, issuing commands to the special equipment they provided and installed on those networks. In these situations, Raskomnadzor will reroute Runet traffic so it doesn't pass through foreign communications hubs. Once a year, the Russian authorities will stage special drills to build practice skills to ensure the Runet's stability in one of these emergencies. The federal government has allocated 30.8 billion rubles, more than $483 million, to implement provisions of the Internet Sovereignty Law 
as part of Russia's Digital Economy National Program. In the first half of last year, Roskomnadzor's General Radio Frequency Center approved 8.3 billion rubles, more than 287 million bucks, in subsidies to fulfill pieces of this implementation. That is a lot of technical detail. What does it actually mean? You know, in English. I've personally tracked the Runet for several years, and my head spins when I try to understand this subject, and not just because I'm getting over the flu. So I spoke to three experts on the Russian internet and asked them. Well, I think what they mean, if, if you sort of listen to like the pronouncements they make, is like they obviously think the internet or the digital sphere or whatever you want to call it is a strategically important resource. And I don't think they're entirely happy that they're not in full control of it. That's Tanya Lokot, an assistant professor in the School of Communications at Dublin City University. She researches protests and digital media in Ukraine and Russia, as well as internet freedom, censorship, and internet governance in Eastern Europe. Tanya says the Russian authorities' push for Runet sovereignty is about grabbing hold of as many levers of power over the web as possible. Because at the moment, right, they, they have some control, obviously, but not, not entirely so, because we have platforms, we have corporations, we have internet providers. So the control is kind of decentralized and distributed. And, and that doesn't seem to be the status quo that the Russian officials sort of want to have. All right. So Russian officials want more control over the internet. While many of the new RUNET regulations enacted in recent years have, let's say, authoritarian tendencies, we're talking censorship and filtration and centralization, there's also been convergence internationally when it comes to concerns about the supposedly global internet skirting local laws. In the United States, for example, it's not uncommon to hear officials demanding the breakup of Facebook over monopoly or other regulatory concerns. I asked Tanya about the uniqueness of Russia's hang-up with internet sovereignty. I mean, I think Russia is definitely not the only government that's preoccupied with the idea of internet sovereignty. I do think that their their particular idea might differ somewhat in, in its execution or in its implementation. I mean, we've seen lots of different countries sort of talk about the importance of making sure that what happens on the internet is in line with local laws and regulations. You know, we've seen things like the U- European Union's general data protection regulation, which aims to protect EU users and their data online. You know, the internet might think of itself as borderless, but it, it actually is used by people who live in countries who all have different rules, uh, different laws, different ideas about freedom of information, different ideas about democracy, whether it's good or bad. Tanya says Russian officials have adopted some of the less helpful articulations of internet sovereignty, noting that comparisons are often made to Chinese internet controls, though the runet isn't nearly as limited. I asked her how far this comparison really goes. I mean, this is, I guess, like the million dollar question, but do you think that they, will they catch up or is it sort of a losing battle and are they aware of that and they're just settling, they're, they're trying to fight for the most they can settle for or... Like, how do you see it playing out in the next five or ten years? I mean, I think they 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 are probably they probably will be able to to catch up somewhat. I don't think they'll reach Chinese levels of control, right? Because everything from data 
and network infrastructure to who owns and, and runs websites. You know, everything ha has progressed slowly and mostly been decentralized in Russia. And it's been owned by a bunch of different people. And even though they're trying now to to impose their rules and their regulations and also to, to own or co-opt different bits of the network, including infrastructure, traffic exchange points, and, and also to control the conversations and the language online. I, I don't think all of those things are entirely within their reach, just despite how authoritarian or how powerful the Russian government thinks it is. One of the key technologies Russian officials are now introducing to beef up internet controls is called DPI, or Deep Packet Inspection. I mentioned this earlier in the episode because DPI is probably the special equipment, the technical means against threats, that Raskolnadzor is supposedly testing as it rolls out the infrastructure that's meant to usher in Runet sovereignty. So, Deep Packet Inspection. What the hell is Deep Packet Inspection? To find out more, I turn to Alyona Epifanova, a program officer at the Robert Bosch Center for Central and Eastern Europe and Russia and Central Asia. Last month, she authored a policy brief titled Deciphering Russia's Sovereign Internet Law, Tightening Control, and accelerating the splinter net. Such devices that can be installed on the hops of internet providers and um, and they can enable to like to look very, very deep, not only into into data packets, into not only metadata, but also into communications or into messages, what exactly people or, I don't know, so people write to each other. So it means like it's not only about that uh, Kevin calls Alona, but it's also about what Kevin told to Alona or Alona told to Kevin during the interview. So that's why it's it's difficult and it's dangerous because then then the states or internet service providers so will be like they will be obliged to to provide such an information to to a state authority if they have a such such a devices on their on their hubs on their networks in other words dpi is a more sophisticated filtration technology but you can also use deep packet inspection to slow down certain services without blocking them outright i asked aliona about it well, do you think it's more likely that they would slow down the sort of undesirable services rather than block them outright? Because I can imagine it being more of a scandal if you block Facebook as opposed to suddenly Facebook just doesn't work as well anymore. And isn't it easier if we just go on contact you now? Yes, exactly. That's also what one of the functions of this of this system of the package inspection because that, that's why the problem is that, that it's so untransparent. We simply, you know, you can't prove <laughs> why your why your Facebook doesn't work properly, why it's so slow, and and also it's not only about Facebook, and uh, it's also about some other companies working in Russia and, you know, and then if if the state can slow down the flow of, of data and then the, the, the certain services that, uh, don't work properly and, and you simply can't prove that it's because of this deep packet inspection or, you know, some um, 
some activities by the state, then 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 it can be problematic. So that's why I think the problem with this system, if it will be really introduced, the package inspection, is that there are many many functions uh, that that can that the state can use for you know for blocking, for filtering, but and and also for some economic advantages for for companies protected by the state. Or and again, I mentioned corruptions, which is <laughs> which is there and. Um, yeah. So, and that's why I think from outside it will be very difficult to observe and to control how this device is functioning. And and for internet service providers, it's also a difficult situation because now they are simply obliged to install them. Remember that the rollout of this advanced technology supposedly falls to officials inside Raskomnadzor, a government agency that's failed to block the instant messenger Telegram for almost two years now. How are we supposed to reconcile these? vast new internet sovereignty powers with the bumbling bureaucrats responsible for the slapdash internet censorship in Russia we've seen over the past decade. Alyona says Raskomnadzor knows what it wants to achieve, but it's simply incapable of fulfilling the assigned tasks. I think they know what they want to achieve, but the problem is it's it's far too ambitious what we are going to do. So in these terms, I, I, I think they know what they do, but they don't know how to do it, how to implement it exactly. So that's why I'm skeptical. I'm skeptical if they will, if they, they'll really do it like sovereign internet, or it will be rather a sovereign internet made in China or made uh, somewhere else. That's why... I, I, I would not underestimate the, the uh, capabilities, but but I, I'm skeptical if uh, there are enough resources to implement such um, such amendments, and if and I'm also skeptical about the corruption in in Russia. So that's why I think also these amendments or um, another initiative what we see uh, from Russian state uh, regarding the internet, they they also they offer big room for maneuver, big room for corruption. So that's why I think it can be difficult to to implement it in this way, or it it will take a lot of time to 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 get there. This gets to something I've wondered about for years. Runet controls and censorship are often compared to what's going on in China. We've already talked about that. In this comparison, the Russian authorities are usually described as late to the authoritarian party. The Runet got a late start, and Moscow simply lacks the resources now to implement the kind of controls we find today in China. That's the narrative. But what if Russia did have the time and resources it needed to impose whatever controls it wanted over the internet? In terms of political will, where do the Russian authorities stand on internet freedom and decentralization? You do see that uh, quite many of the laws that they adopt, uh, these allow them and enable them to, for example, restrict, uh, restrict access to Facebook, restrict access to Google services. Uh, but they're actually not doing it. So then the question is, so why are they not blocking YouTube, even though YouTube is violating various legislations, right? That's Marielle Weiermars, an assistant professor in cybersecurity and politics at Maastricht University in the Netherlands and a visiting researcher at the University of Helsinki. Her most recent research is about the freedom of expression in Russia's media sphere. Marielle says the Russian authorities are still restrained by democratic discourse, which requires legitimizing limitations on internet freedom. Even in a country that's made big strides away from various internet freedoms, cracking down on the web is still a hard sell. And then we do come to this uh, element of what is then the public response? So if you still want to uphold this uh, image of being a democracy, so even if it is 
restricted in various aspects, uh, then you do have to also be very careful in what you are restricting. So there has to be some kind of uh, legitimation uh, in place to explain to your population that it is indeed for your best interest and for the best interest of the state, uh, best interest of the Russian people to limit these, uh, these resources. And I have the impression that this is still quite a difficult thing, that they haven't been able to sufficiently legitimize uh, to, uh, to say that, yes, we can take these more, uh, more severe steps, similar to what, what China has done. Also, they don't want to be China. Right? Russia is different. Russia is a proper democracy. Marielle says one of the reasons we don't see more popular backlash against Russia's Internet Sovereignty Initiative is the public's general ignorance about both Internet rights and the structure of the web itself. And Russians are not alone here. Uh, but when you think about just in general, the, the, the level of awareness, I think it is quite limited. So even outside of Russia, uh, just the understanding of uh, what your, your rights are and uh, that you might actually want to protect your privacy online, even if you think that you do not have anything that is secret or sensitive. Uh, I think the general awareness tends to be quite low. Uh, and also just a general understanding of how does this actually work? So how does the internet work? Uh, how does your computer connect to these bigger infrastructures? Where does your information go? In general, I think there's quite a limited understanding of these type of topics. And then it also becomes much more difficult to understand what is going on, uh, what the impact will be of these new measures, and then what you can do. So it actually involves various steps. And uh, there unfortunately appears not to be a critical mass that is both uh, sufficiently knowledgeable as well as that they feel that they are empowered to do something. Another reason you don't see Russian internet sovereignty causing more of a panic is that the market has been pretty stable despite all the murmurs about state intervention. Last November, the Russian internet giant Yandex changed the structure of its corporate governance by creating a public interest fund within the company, just as lawmakers in the state Duma were considering legislation they would have limited the shares foreigners could own in Russian internet companies, which had led to dramatic fluctuations in Yandex market value. The new management structure will be established in Kaliningrad by the Dutch company Yandex NV as an international fund, a non-profit organization that could be constituted as a Russian offshore. The fund will receive Sparebank's golden share in Yandex NV, a nominal share that is able to outvote all other shares in certain specified circumstances. Currently, Yandex Golden Share can veto any attempted sale of significant amounts of the company's stock. Just as I was recording this podcast episode, Yandex's capitalization reached an all-time high of 902 billion rubles, more than $14 billion. The digital economy in Russia is flourishing, and of course Yandex is one of the central players within that entire ecosystem. Uh, so in that sense, I don't think it's necessarily surprising. You might also think that this deal or like the restructuring of the, the formal corporate structure, that that also helped reinforce confidence in the future of Yandex. Uh, so that might, uh, it might reassure some stakeholders. Uh, so it might actually work in the, in their benefit. Uh, but of course, it is a thing to keep in mind when they would push forward with actually, uh, sovereign, uh, or reinforcing the sovereignty of the, of the internet. So if they would, uh, indeed, uh, if it would support domestic producers. So that's, of course, one of the aims, or one of the perceived aims, is to, to reinforce those domestic players and to push out a bit more the foreign players. So, for instance, when you speak about that uh, the hosting all services on domestic servers, 
then that means that you're uh, pushing out, for example, the, the cloud services hosted by Amazon. Uh, so these type of infrastructures, I think it would be quite important to see how they are shifting and it might actually work in the benefit of Yandex in the future. Is that like one of the main goals? Is it essentially protectionism? I think it is it's part of it is protectionism. Um, but at the same time, uh, the fact that there is this flourishing domestic market also makes it possible to do so. So if Russia did not have this fully fledged digital economy that has all of these different services that are uh, integrated as well and that are fully functional, then it would not be possible to even think about trying to sever yourself from these international players. Asked about the Russian authorities' political will when it comes to the internet, Tanya Lokut says there's no consensus within the government about going the Chinese Great Firewall route. And probably even more importantly, many officials, especially the ones who keep introducing new, more draconian policies, seem to have a poor grasp of how the internet actually works. I think while some people are very enthusiastic and they would embrace a Chinese firewall scenario readily if, if it were available to them. I don't think everybody agrees that that would be good. Also, I think a lot of the a lot of the officials in Russia just honestly don't understand how the internet works. And that has that has kind of like been the one weak spot that activists and, and campaigners for internet freedom see as like a hopeful thing. It's like, you know, they can pass all the laws they want, but if it's impossible to implement, like physically or technically or financially, it's just not going to happen, right? So, and, and that's why I've seen like so much kind of cynicism and like skepticism on the part of quite a lot of uh, like Russian digital rights activists. They're like, yeah, this law is certainly damaging and it's threatening, but also like, it's just not, it's just not going to work the way they think it will work because it's impossible. It's like, it's technically impossible. So certainly, right, it's, it, it's, it's possible to do damage, right? But also, like, if you just don't understand how the internet works as a space or as a, as a technological network, it's really hard to con- for you to control it. Even, even if, even through, through, like, applications of force and, like, taking things away from people. You know, we've come this far in the show without actually addressing the key rationale for Runet sovereignty in the first place. The idea that it's necessary to defend against a digital shutdown imposed from abroad, some kind of ultimate economic sanction where the U.S. supposedly tries to shut off Russian internet access. Ilyona Epifanova says this is a bogus argument. They try to explain it to, to, to people in Russia and outside that there is one regulator of the internet, which is, uh, so uh, there is no such a regulator. This is exactly the logic the Russian state want to, want to introduce in Russia and want to, want to have uh, over the Russian internet. The architecture of the internet is far more complex than uh, Russia's state tried to, to show us. Whatever state officials say about the supposed threat from abroad, Tanya Lokut points out that digital rights activists inside Russia are not fooled. They know they're the primary target of the new sovereignty regulations, she says. Yeah, however realistic some Russian officials might be about, oh, yes, this is what we really care about is sovereignty and protection from external threats. I do I do also think it's a useful screen because at least from what we've seen happening in Russia over the past few years, I think they're a lot more interested in exerting control internally 
than about protection from external threats. And that's, again, if, if you look at what the digital rights activists are saying, like they're, I think they're very clear that they believe that the officials, like 75%, they care about internal control and internal censorship. And maybe 25% is, is really about making sure that the Russian internet keeps working, even if there is an external threat. Rights activists inside Russia have good reason to feel squeezed, Tanya says. A lot of the filtration requirements built into the new sovereignty regulations aren't good for much besides censorship. So there are different ways of ensuring sovereignty, right? But like filtering traffic is really not about sovereignty or maintaining a connection. It's it's about controlling what is visible and what's invisible and you know, who says what and, and what can be blocked or, or filtered. So that's like clearly not so much about external threats, but really about internal threats because it's about filtering traffic internally in the country. So I think to me, it's just more, more indications that the Russian state is sort of continuing its uh, tried and tested approach of like, be as vague as you possibly can. <laughs> about what the legislation actually means, because then it'll be much easier to apply it as you see fit, depending on the circumstances. So in that sense, I don't think there's there's anything entirely new about the internet sovereignty legislation. It's, it's very much like all of the previous internet-related laws that are very abstract and very vague, but also very easily kind of usable or um, abusable, I guess, against people. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, a podcast that highlights how Medusa's top reporting intersects with the wider research and expertise that exists about Russia. On today's show, as I get over the flu, we took a long, hard look at Russian internet sovereignty, wrapping our heads around both the technical enforcement of this vague idea and its wider consequences for internet freedom. In years to come, we're sure to see more laws restricting the brunette and state regulators will undoubtedly make new attempts to bring foreign and domestic online services into compliance with these rules. It's a brave new world we're living in. A splinternet, as some are calling it. And nobody knows exactly how it'll shake out. Whatever happens, hopefully we'll all retain access to that most important resource of all. This podcast, The Naked Pravda. On future episodes of this show, We'll be discussing academic turmoil at Moscow's Higher School of Economics and queer Russophone science fiction. The Naked Pravda is a podcast from Medusa, our first English-language show, and I hope you'll recommend us to your friends and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're tuning in to help put this program in front of more people. Thanks for listening, and come back soon.